Well, I haven't been able to say Happy New Year uh, yet, so Happy New Year. Um, I want to say welcome to those that are visiting with us for the first time. Thank you for coming. And those of you that are always here, thank you for your faithfulness. And those that are live streaming, we're glad that you joined us. And hope that uh, next week you'll tune in with us again and maybe send an email to a friend wherever you might be and invite them uh, to be in worship with us as well. Let me begin uh, this morning and and tell you a little story, and I'm going to kind of read a little bit of it as well as tell it, because it's a a story that has a lot of integral details to it, and I just don't want to miss anything. So it goes like this. On a summer day in 1606, in a towering grove of sequoias in a place that would one day be known as California, a tiny little seedling poked up through the virgin soil. It was then that it was drawing energy from the filtered sunlight of the, of the towering sentinels, and this infant lifted its miniature arms to the light and, and the warmth that awakened it. A year later, this seedling turned sapling, and the London Company established the Jamestown Settlement in Massachusetts. A year after that, as the sapling became a young sequoia, an adventurer named Samuel de Champlain, who founded Quebec City in New France, which is a territory that one would know today as what? Canada. In three more years, when the sequoias topped 11 feet above the forest floor, a group of scholars released a very elegant way of translating the Holy Scriptures known as the King James Version. In 1618, this tree was nearly two stories tall. Europe had become embroiled in conflict. History books would one day call it the Thirty Years' War. And as that tree continued to grow year and year after that, America became a nation. We had fought a civil war. We had joined Europe in several World War conflicts. We had put men on the moon, and we had suffered at the hands of terrorists on September 11th of 2001. Through all those events, which literally spanned centuries, that seedling ultimately became a towering behemoth of of an organism, 240 feet tall as a mighty sequoia. But then something happened that didn't normally happen. That that 240-foot tree, sequoia, that looked like a pillar of health, came crashing to the earth in a thunderous crash, which was louder than the stock market's crash back during the Great Depression. It was the first of Yosemite's magnificent sequoias to fall in many years. And the Forest Service did what the government does best. They said, we need to study this, and we need to come together and decide and hold a hearing and find out what happened. But, but the questions in this story would be, what mysterious disease caused this sequoia to fall? And what would cause such a, a, a majestic creation to, that looked like the pillar of health on the outside? What would cause this to lose its life? So they started looking back historically. There had been no windstorms. There had been no firestorms. There had been, there had been um, no cold snaps that would have caused this. Uh, there, was, there were no lightning strikes. I mean, everything known to man, they checked from a natural point of view. Uh, and if, even when the tree was on the ground as they sawed it in half, they looked at the rings in, in the midst of the internal workings of the tree and found it to be a beautiful specimen. There was no insect damage. There was nothing at all that nature had done. CNN ran a study, and they called one of the park rangers aside, and her name was Deb Schweitzer. And they asked Deb, they said, from the forest ranger's point of view, what caused this? And she said, we've looked at it exhaustively, and we've only come to one conclusion, foot traffic. 
So the reporter asked, well, what's foot traffic? And she said, well, well, through all of these centuries and years, people have been walking around in circles and trampling upon the grounds in which this great tree was erected. And over the years, because of their constant moving and banging and clanging and disturbing the roots that were there, it caused foot traffic, which caused the tree to die, and therefore the tree fell. She said, but we've taken some precautions now. We've erected a safety barrier around the tree, so therefore people cannot get close to it anymore. And we have secured that tree to its greatest, greatest gift. I was thinking about this a little bit, and I, and I thought about how you and I, were a lot like sequoias. We're, we are on the outside. We may look great. We may look like a pillar of health, physically, spiritually, but on the inside, we're, we're decaying and we're dying, or, or we are moving forward in our life. We're, we're seeing that our, our root systems aren't as in place or aren't as together as we thought it would be, and that things are happening in our life all around us that are constantly chafing away and damaging the very structure of the roots that keep us to be the spiritual giants that we were created to be. You know, it can, that, that, that fall, that collapse that happened to the sequoia can happen to us. It can come as a, as a mighty crash at one time. It can be like death by a thousand paper cuts, as it's often said. We just never know, but if we do not protect the spiritual roots that embody who we are as a people, we'll find ourselves really struggling. And that one thing, that one thing will kill the essence of who we are. Now, maybe you're like me. I, I spent this last political season trying to be in tune with what all was going on. I would listen to news reports on various networks. I would read the papers. I would try to be informed. I plugged into the debates. I began to ask myself lots of questions, trying to understand where we as a nation would be heading from a political point of view and trying to get where we needed to be. But after spending a season watching, hearing, and living this negative presidential campaign, I found myself struggling. And maybe you did too, I don't know. But I found myself struggling. It was a, it was a season of cutdowns. It was a season of false bravado. It was a season that was geared upon trying to make the other one look bad while trying to make yourself look good. The outcome of the past election pitted brother against brother, sister against sister. It enabled a negative rhetoric that continues in some places to embody who we are as a nation, all for the cause of winning what at one time was a great prize, the office of president of the United States. But I wonder, I wonder, how many people have grown disappointed? How many of you have been felt disenfranchised? How many of you have found yourselves fed up with what we've become as a nation and as individuals through this political season? The broadcasters in our news media, uh, you know, they're, they're paid to bring stories in. But, you know, sometimes you might be having a great day and you turn on the news. At least I know when I'm having a great day and I turn on the news. And it seems to me that when I'm trying to have a great day, there's always this obscurity of what will be reported, something of some negative thing that's happening in my community or some negative thing that's happening in my state or, or our nation or the world. And it's a big bummer that when I'm trying to feel good about who I am and trying to feel good about where I live, there's, there's always some negative story that comes to want to just take my breath away and move me into a different direction. In fact, rage is, is, a, is a concept that, that many people are saying today is, is created in our nation, that, that this last political season has, has, has made that erode in us and, and made that come forward. In fact, they've said that, that rage is, is normal to our psychology now. And if you think about it, uh, the word rage has become a part of our human and American vocabulary. We have coined phrases like road rage. Anybody ever experienced that? Or, or we've, ex we've 
you know, communication rage or school rage or classroom rage. And then they've said this last season of politics was political or voter rage. So the question before us this morning is, how many of us are feeling weary? How many of us are, are feeling fed up? How many of us are just ready to cash it all in? And if you're like me, maybe you have allowed the nonsense of the world, the nonsense of our national politics, the nonsense of so many things out of our control. Maybe like me, you've allowed that to come and, and begin destroying the roots around your spiritual soul. And maybe that foot traffic has come and is starting to cause you to crash like a mighty sequoia. Now, foot traffic isn't just the politics. It's not just the political system. Foot traffic comes in so many ways. You might see foot traffic in things like uh, the wear and tear of a long daily commute. Some of you are in the car hours. Your kids ride on buses for hours. You know, we see it in our commutes. We find ourselves responding to unending emails, phone calls, text messages. Then we hear that annoying sound that we ourselves selected to be the sound that alerts us that a new voicemail or, or email message or time has come and we just tire of hearing those noises. Uh, foot traffic comes in noise and chatter and clatter and traffic and crowds, politics, talk radio, telephone, 24-hour news coverage, the neighbor's dog that won't stop barking, bills, worries, responsibilities, deadlines, endless chores, demanding children, schoolwork that won't end, and relational barriers. All of those things contribute to foot traffic. And my guess is that every single one of us in this room can say, yep, foot traffic gets the best of me. So we find out that foot traffic wears on us, and, and we can't evade all of it. We can evade some of it, but we can never evade all of that. And what we need to do is we must protect the most sacred part of who we are, that one thing that keeps us connected with our Creator. It's our soul. As we're refocusing and as we're looking ahead to this new season, the care and the wear and tear on our soul is heavy on my heart. And it's something that we as a church need to get a handle on. David put it this way, King David, he said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It doesn't matter how deep your faith well is. It doesn't matter how much scripture you might read. It doesn't matter how often you attend church or in a prayer or source group. If your foundation is destroyed, it doesn't matter how righteous you are and how righteous you can be. Jesus says when you boil down all of life down to these basics, when you think of terms of, of time and eternity, not much is really important. In fact, he says that, that only one thing is essential. Will we build a sacred enclosure around our roots? Will we build something that will protect our soul? And he said, if we don't, then we're going to do the second thing, which is we're going to allow the frenzied foot traffic to erode our spiritual roots. We're going to allow the things of the world, the words that we say, the actions that we embark, the things that we hear, we're going to allow all of that. And that's going to send us crashing to the earth. Paul said it this way, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The key word is peace, P-E-A-C-E. -E. We who are followers of the way, we who are followers, disciples of Jesus Christ, we follow someone whose life embodied peace. 
And the only way that we can get our life together is, is to have that which surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts in Christ is to have peace in our life. During times leading up to the presidential election, I found myself deeply disappointed with a lot of my fellow Americans. I look forward to the end of the election because I was, I was getting tired of all the hyperbole, the grandstanding. I was tired and wanted it all over. But the reality is that I'm not so sure it's gotten any better. Yes, the election is over. Yes, uh, we're moving forward in our process, which is our democracy. All of that is yes, it's correct. But I think that instead of getting through that, we have now turned into negative rhetoric. We're seeing an abiding bitterness that is biting and chafing away at, at the very fabric of who we are as a people that we are more inclined to be mad at the other guy or girl because they don't believe exactly what we do, or they didn't vote like we did, or they didn't accept what we can accept. And just because someone thinks differently doesn't mean they're your enemy. And we find ourselves in that place. What was long touted to be the land of the free and the home of the brave has instead been made a nation of negative rhetoric, a nation that is depressed and feelings, and suffering souls. As I said earlier, rage is a leading emotion in our country today. One thing that I've noticed is that even with the election over, we are real good about tearing the other guy down. We're real good at, at accusing each other of things. We're real good about finding a fault in our neighbor's life or a schoolmate's life or a coworker's life or a church member's life or our pastor's life or parishioner's life that we are so good at using words to tear each other apart, the criticism that can come our way. But that criticism oftentimes becomes vile and crude. We saw that in the election, and in my opinion, it was unbecoming of believers. The more I listened to all this, the more I became angry. I became cynical. I felt bitterness welling up inside. I was light on compassion. I was short on patience. And the election season seemed to dominate all of my senses. And the more I tried to understand how I could make a legitimate decision for what I believed the future for me ought to be, the more I became engulfed in all the negativism that was out there. And I forgot something that was very important. It's something that the writer of the Proverbs said. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Isn't that true? Above all else, guard your heart. Your heart is the wellspring of life. As followers of Jesus Christ, that's the one thing that you and I can never lose sight of. We must never lose sight of guarding our heart. Because our heart is the wellspring of life. No matter what's going on, no matter how bad we feel, no matter whether we felt we won or we lost, no matter what we're saying to others or what others are saying to us, we must make sure that we guard our heart because it is the wellspring of life. Pastor Pam reminded us last week as we kicked off the new year, and she said, it's time to recalibrate. It's time to, to shake off the things of the past. It's time to let those things go and to look forward to a promising future. And she challenged you as well as she challenged me. She said, are you ready to do that? Are you willing to make the change that's necessary? And I hope you are. I know I'm challenged to do that, and I'm doing everything in my possible means to shake loose of the past and to look forward to a promising future. When Solomon built this new temple, he had a hope. 
And that hope was to to remove the chaos that had come into the land and to restore order so that God's design for the souls of men and women would be reclaimed. The temple had had gone away, and Solomon was at a point where, where he wanted to make sure that God's people could see a physical, tangible presence of God. And he felt if we can see God, then something good can come of that. He said these words out of 2 Chronicles 7. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said, here's what this writer says, I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifices. So God's acknowledging the work that Solomon has done, that this temple that has been built, God says, I choose this place to receive offerings and sacrifices. But then he goes on to say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Did you catch that? When God's people recognize that the trajectory that you're on, the words that you're saying, the anxiety that you're feeling, the rhetoric you're throwing at each other, the, the, the rhetoric in which we do against each other because we disagree on things. He says until we recognize that and we confess that, only then will he hear our prayer from heaven. And then he will come and forgive us of our sins and then heal the land. So God says it begins with us. It begins with you and me making a conscious decision that we no longer want to treat one another the way in which the world seems to be treating themselves today. That we no longer want to be like our fellow countrymen in so many ways, bickering and biting and and casting stones and calling out and, and, and horribly saying things to harm one another. But as Christians, we are called to lead the nation, not merely just live in the nation. We are called to humble ourselves and to bring about the experience of God so that the land may be healed. You see, God promises to heal our land. God promises to heal all of us only when we enter into an act of repentance. Repentance is the key word here. Repentance is an important emphasis of our spiritual life. It's part of our spiritual pilgrimage. It's a way of of protecting the roots of our unprotected heart. It's a way of, of coming clean. Without repentance, we remain in the same depraved condition. Without repentance, we remain on the same odd and out of the ordinary trajectory. Without repentance, we continue to harm one another. Without repentance, we fall further away from God. Repentance is key. Paul says that our spiritual pilgrimage of the Christian life is like that of a soldier who's on a mission but who refuses to entangle himself in what's happening in the civilian's affairs. Listen to what Paul writes here. He says, people will be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited. People will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. You know, what Paul is saying is, all of us without God, that's who we are. And without repentance, that's what we live into. And that's what we put on as our life. 
And that's what the world sees in us. And guess what he says here? If you see anybody who's like that, he says this, have nothing to do with those people. So what he's saying is, we're going to stop having church every Sunday because we're all like that, because we're not supposed to be in each other's presence. That's what he's saying. But when we repent, when we clean our heart, when we come before God and acknowledge all of our abnormalities, when we come before God and we say, Lord, I am totally dependent upon you, and when we come in that essence, we begin to see a great work that has come. Repentance is the only thing that can free us. It's the only thing that, that can take our marred, sinful creature who we've become and restore it and recreate it and put it back into the holy image of God. Because remember, just as Solomon built a temple based on human hands, God built a spiritual temple in each of us by his spiritual hands. And through the life and death and, and continued glory of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we now have become the temple of God. And that temple must not stay in a marred state because who we are internally is who we exude we are externally. And if we proudly wear our monikers as Christians into the world, and if we have not repented of the behaviors that distort our identity, then we're basically telling the world that, that, we, that that's what God looks like because we're the temple and we need to be cleansed from that. People see within us that image. So how do you do this? To repent means to change direction. And, and there's, four, there's four steps. And, and if you can just remember these, I've tried to break this down to where it's, it's easy to remember because folks, we need to be repenting multiple times throughout our day and our life. Repentance is not something we do once a year and say, got that done. I got another 364 days to live. Every day we live in sin. Every day we make choices of decisions that hurt ourselves and hurt others. Every day we get off the path that God has created for us. That's the holy path. And therefore we must repent. So here are the steps to repentance. The first thing is we must humble ourselves. Humble yourself. What does it mean to humble yourself? You must acknowledge that you are not perfect. You must acknowledge that you don't have all the answers. You must acknowledge no matter what kind of Christian you think you are, you are nothing when it comes compared to the power of God. So humbling ourselves before God brings us to that state. It means that we subdue our pride. It brings us into full submission into the self-denying loyalty of who God is. The second piece is we must pray. We've got to pray, so we humble ourselves. Now we, now we need to pray. That's the shameless acknowledgement that we acknowledge what it is that we've done. Do you hear how humbling ourselves and praying a shameless act, it takes the whole ego out. Folks, God already knows what you've done. You can't hide it from him. So don't lie to him. Go, come in for him and say, Lord, I know this is who I am, and I, and I repent of this. The third piece is to seek. And that means that, that we desire to, to get in, into acknowledging those desperate situations in which God is the only hope of our deliverance. Nothing we can buy, no place we can live, no job we can have, no person we can marry, no office we can hold can get us where we need to be. Only God, by our seeking him, can get us to that place of possible hope to bring us out of our deliverance. And the last piece is to turn. Humble, pray, seek, turn. Turn means to change direction. That's the definition of repentance in Hebrew to change direction or to change the course I'm currently traveling. 
to get back on the path that God has created, a path of holiness, and to get off of the corrupt path that I have created. I began this morning talking about these giant sequoias, and I, and I shared with you what, what killed them. It was this foot traffic, and, and I shared with you that, that foot traffic damages who we are, and that the one thing, that the kernel of truth that we need to hold on to is that we need to protect our soul. And the way to do that is through the act of repentance. And that when we let go of all of that negativism from us and we just have God come and recreate in us, we begin to see something that's new. Folks, it doesn't matter what man or woman sits in the White House. This, this nation is not built upon those values. This nation is upon, built upon values where people like you and me treat each other with love and courtesy and respect, no matter even if we disagree on things. It means that this nation's foundation is built upon brother and sister working together and coming together in our commonality and understanding that the words that we share and the actions that we take against one another grieves the heart of God. Let's get back on a path of holiness. Why? Because when we confess our sin, when we humble ourselves and we confess our sin, God will hear our prayers. And at that time, he will then come and he will forgive us of our sins and he will heal our land. Let America be a nation built upon repentance and forgiveness.